Will you please turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7, Matthew chapter 7. If you need a Bible, these brothers are going to make their way to the back. They have some Bibles in hand, so get their attention, and they'll get one to you. And those Bibles are marked at Matthew 7, so just turn there where it's marked, and you won't have to search around for the passage we'll be considering today, Matthew 7. Several years ago, I had a pastor friend tell me about an email he had received saying that if he were willing to hold a large sum of money from overseas in his bank account, he would be handsomely rewarded. Now, this was in the days when email was still a relatively new form of communication, and we were all just getting accustomed to the kinds of solicitations that you would receive through that medium. I'd already seen a similar email, so I thought he was going to conclude, as I had, that this was a hoax, in fact, a scheme to persuade him to give his bank account information to a stranger. To my great surprise, he thought it was legitimate. I gently pointed out the dangers, that it was extremely unlikely that he was just randomly going to fall into a fortune, and that I had also received the same email. Now, I suppose that we could all tell stories of our own gullibility when matched against the ability of, say, a fast-talking salesman intent on getting us to do what he wants. Yes, we could probably all tell stories of at least going along until we come to our senses and back out, hopefully. But, of course, it's much more fun and face-saving to tell stories about others' naivete rather than our own. So that's why in my sermons I often refer to pastor friends who have done dumb things. Of course, I would never fall into any such kind of situation. All right, fine. I'll, uh, I'll confess my own lack of judgment. But I'm only giving you a lapse that turned out not to be too serious, and it happened a long, a long time ago. On my very last day of high school, I was driving from the school I attended in Allen Park to my home in Ecorse. And I was at a stoplight at Dick's and Outer Drive. And when the light turned green, I hit the gas and the car didn't move. It took me a bit to realize the reason. And that is when you hit the gas pedal, it only works if you have gas. That couldn't spoil my good mood. It was a beautiful day. I've just completed 13 years of hard labor in school. I've got no homework tomorrow. Everything's good. So I put the flashers on and I started walking toward a gas station about a half mile down Outer Drive near I-75. Now, if you're familiar with that area, there is a self-serve gas station there now, but at that time it was a full-service station. and There were many of those kinds of stations around at the time. These were places that had gas pumps, but they also fixed cars. And it was also a dump. There were cars in various states of disrepair strewn throughout the parking lot. I went in and explained to the attendant, I explained my predicament, that I needed gas and I also didn't have a gas can. They had one, but they wouldn't let me take it without some collateral. I only had a dollar. I needed that for gas, so I gave him my watch. I put a gallon of gas in the can. I walked back to my car. I was kind of hunched over, carefully pouring the gas from the can into the tank when I heard a voice behind me say, ran out of gas, huh? And I turned to see who this amazingly perceptive person might be. 
And standing there with a, a big grin was a guy who was disheveled and unkempt. I guess you would say a man of the street. In plain language, uh, he, was a, he was a bum. And he asked where I was headed, and I made the mistake of telling him. Lo and behold, he was headed in the same direction. He asked for a ride, and I reluctantly agreed. Got the gas in the car, I got it started. We got in, and I explained that I needed to return the gas can to the station. I parked, I went inside, leaving him in the car, I took my keys with me. And I was watching my guest with one eye the whole time. I came out and I was leaving the parking lot when a vehicle with two women pulled up next to me and asked through my already rolled down window, do you want to buy a joint? Now before I could get out an answer, which would have been no, by the way. Before, before I could even respond, the bum set asked her, how much? And she says, I think a quarter. And then he turns to me and says, can I borrow a quarter? Well, I gave two resounding no's, one to the sales ladies, the other to the bum, and I headed down Outer Drive. When I got to the corner of my street, I stop and I tell him, I'll be turning here to go to my house, which I thought implied, so you can get out of the car. But he says, but I'm going to the river to fish, can you take me there? And thankfully, I gave another resounding no, and he beat a hasty retreat. Now that, that incident with an extra passenger in my car ended without a problem, thankfully. As do most of the decisions that we make, which when we look back on them, were probably not the best, but no harm done. But there are matters about which, if we make the wrong kind of decision, if we fail to choose wisely, will have severe consequences both for us and for others. And in his famous Sermon on the Mount, Jesus has given a profile of a genuine follower of his. And beginning in chapter 7 and verse 13, he gives what you might call the invitation to the sermon. As we saw last week, he said that there are two gates that we can choose to enter, the narrow and the wide. And there are two roads that we can choose to travel, the narrow and the broad. And because those choices are so crucial, the broad road leading to destruction, the narrow to life, then we cannot be gullible in our choice of those who would teach us and who would lead us. And that's why on the heels then of that teaching in verses 13 and 14 about two gates and two roads with two very different, different destinies, Jesus says in verse 15, watch out for false prophets. Now let's ask the Lord to help us as we look at His words in verses 15 through 20. Father, we thank You again for the opportunity to be in Your presence and with Your people and now to turn to Your Word and to find Your wisdom therein. We ask You as each week to grant us open hearts and alert minds 
so that we will understand your truth and we will willingly make application of it to our lives. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. Jesus says, watch out for false prophets in verse 15. And then he says, they come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ferocious wolves. Now, as each week, we have an outline inserted in your program for you. If you don't have that out already, I encourage you to take that out and follow along as we look at what Jesus has for us in this passage. The first point is this, that Christians are called to discern. Christians are called to discern. Now, in this passage, the word discern is not used, but the concept is there, and that's why I have it in your outline, that we are called to discern. Because discerning means to differentiate. It means to distinguish between good and bad, between truth and error, between right and wrong. And what Jesus warns about here, watching out for false prophets, they come to you in sheep's clothing, but in fact they are ferocious wolves. It's a very real problem that should be obvious, otherwise Jesus wouldn't have spent time warning about it. And we know as well that it's a very real problem because it is warned about in a number of places elsewhere in Scripture. One of those is when the great apostle Paul was giving his farewell to the leaders at the church in a city called Ephesus. Paul had spent three years with them, and now he was going to be leaving them, having trained leaders there in order to move the church in that city forward. And here's part of what he says to them in that farewell address. Savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. So just as Jesus says with this urgency in verse 15, watch out for false prophets, Paul is warning the leaders in Ephesus, be on your guard about that very thing. Now, why would it be the case that false teachers, those who would lead God's flock astray, would come in sheep's clothing. Well, it should not surprise us at all because their master, Satan, does the same. Notice what the Bible says about Satan. Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. It is not surprising then if his servants also masquerade as servants of righteousness. So what Jesus is saying then is, I've told you about the narrow gate and the narrow road. And yet there will be those who would seek to teach you and lead you in ways that don't require that you go through the narrow gate and travel the narrow road. Rather, they will tell you, you can go on the broad road and you can be like everybody else. Watch out for them. And he's saying that they will be very deceptive. They will come to you with Christian lingo. They will look the part but over time, as you analyze what they teach, they are leading you down the broad road rather than the narrow road that I call you to travel. I've experienced this. I experienced this in our parent church 20 years ago. 20 years ago. I personally went through the most difficult ministry crisis that I've ever had. By God's grace, I hope to never have a repeat of that. But over 20 years ago, we had some people come into our church. And one man in particular, he was, a, he was literally a salesman by trade. 
And he was very smooth. And he knew the lingo. He had been in church circles most of his life, if not all of his life. He had served in various positions at, in various churches, leadership positions. We were a small church. We, like most small churches, are looking for all the help we can get. Here's someone who knows the terrain, has served. And so we foolishly placed him in leadership in relatively short order. Over time, he began to ravage the flock by drawing away disciples to himself. And within two years, our church had a split that lost 40% of its congregation. Very, very difficult time indeed. And I've experienced, as I say, firsthand then, the warning that Jesus and Paul and throughout Scripture we are given that we are called to discern right from wrong, good from bad, truth from error. Watch out. Jesus says, I say in your outline that Christians who are called to discern do a couple of things. The first is they distinguish substance from style. They distinguish substance from style. That is, Christians who are discerning, who are making, who are differentiating, who are distinguishing, they distinguish, among other things, between what is truly substance and what is merely style. In the passage that we so often quote uh, at Christmas time and also at Easter, because it's applicable to both, but we quote Isaiah chapter 53, that the Messiah would be one who is a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Many of you are familiar with that passage. It goes on to say, we all like sheep have gone astray and each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. And many of you are familiar with that language. But at the beginning of all of that, at the beginning of Isaiah chapter 53, it speaks of the environment of the Messiah's upbringing. And Isaiah says this in verse 2. He grew up like a tender shoot, and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. The Expositor's Bible Commentary says, the principle that human appearance is irrelevant to God's choice of his servants is here applied to the coming Messiah, to Jesus. Now, I should just say as a a side note, it is possible that that reference in Isaiah 53 and verse 2, is to what he would look like after he was arrested and beaten. But the Bible makes it explicit, this teaching that outward appearance, the superficiality of that, the shallowness of that, is irrelevant to God in the quality and the choosing of his servants. God makes that explicit in the choosing of Israel's first and second kings, Saul and David. Do you all remember that from the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament? In the choosing of Saul, the Bible says this, Saul was a choice and handsome man. And there was not a more handsome person than he among the sons of Israel. From his shoulders and up, he was taller than any of the people. So we might say Saul was literally head and shoulders above the rest. And this is precisely the kind of person that the people wanted. Somebody who looks presidential. Somebody who looks pastoral. Somebody who looks kingly. In this case, that's what we want because the Bible tells us when he stood among the people, he was taller than any of the people from his shoulders upward. Samuel said to all the people, do you see him whom the Lord has chosen? 
Surely there's no one like him among all the people. So all the people shouted and said, Long live the king. This guy, Saul, he's your guy. He is, he is definitely a king directly from central casting. He has got all the goods. But in contrast to the choosing of Saul, whose tenure as king could only be said to be a disaster, when God replaced him with David, God made a point to downplay the significance of appearance. When the sons of Jesse, the man whose family God had said the next king would come, were brought before Samuel one by one, this is what the Bible says about one of those encounters. It says, Samuel saw Eliab and thought, surely the Lord's anointed stands before, here before the Lord. So Samuel takes a look now at this son of Jesse, and he says, this must be the one. Now, what's he basing that on? He looks the part. How do we know that's what he's basing it on? Because in the next verse, the Lord corrects Samuel's apparently starstruck, central casting approach to choosing a leader. Here's what the Lord says. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not consider his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord does not look at the things people look at. People look at the outward appearance. The Lord looks at the heart. Do you all know there are statistics, there have actually been... Uh, there have actually been surveys done of who it is that actually rises to the top in most organizations. And there's a certain profile, a certain look, a certain stature in most organizations for that because most of us are susceptible to evaluating people by this outward appearance. But Christians who are discerning, who distinguish between substance and, and mere style, they don't they're not affected by things like clothing and outward appearance or talk. That does not fool a discerning Christian. Dear friends, a focus on style is a focus on what's shallow. Now, you may be thinking to yourself, Brown, you're just jealous because you are not tall, dark, or handsome. And I must admit that being short, fat, and ugly... This does not qualify one any more than being tall, dark, and handsome. But the point is this, physical appearance is not what God looks upon. Paul, likewise, was not physically attractive. And because people normally evaluate that, that way, that was actually used against him, believe it or not. Here's what the Bible says. Some say his, that is Paul's letters, are weighty and forceful, but in person he is unimpressive. And his speaking amounts to nothing. And yet God chose Paul, this apparently unimpressed, otherwise unimpressive guy, to be the leader of spreading his gospel and planting his churches throughout his world in the first century. And this same Paul determined that it would be the power of God that would lead in the establishment of God's church and the furtherance of his work rather than the eloquence of of Paul. In fact, he says that in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. I, Paul, did not come with eloquence or human wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God. My message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words, but with a demonstration of the Spirit's power. Here's why. So that your faith might not rest upon human wisdom, but on God's 
power. So if those are not the things that we are to look for, if we as discerning Christians who see the difference between mere style and real substance, if we're to look beyond the outward and not get caught in the trap that so many organizations do as they elevate those who fit the profile and have the look, if we're to avoid that, then what are we to look for? Well, God has not left us in the dark on this most important issue, as He is not on any other important issue. His Word is sufficient for us for everything we need for life and godliness. And in 1 Timothy chapter 3, God says, here's what you're to look for in those who would be your leaders and teachers. The pastor is to be above reproach, faithful to his wife, temperate, self-controlled, respectable, hospitable, able to teach, not given to drunkenness, not violent but gentle, not quarrelsome, not a lover of money. He must manage his own family well. He must have a good reputation with outsiders. Do you all see that almost everything on that list has to do with inward character demonstrated in the life of the individual? That's what God says to look for. And yet, I must tell you, dear friends, I am amazed and never cease to be amazed at how very gullible Christian people can be. And here I'm just speaking of the Christian evangelical world, not in particular to us, though we must all take warning. But I'm amazed at how gullible Christians are. Did you all hear that in the last couple of weeks there was a book pulled from the shelves that was hawked by the evangelical industrial complex for a number of years. The book was called The Boy Who Came Back from Heaven. Well, the boy who came back from heaven in the last couple of weeks said, "Ah, I never went to heaven. Well, imagine that. Imagine that. That that turned out to be false. When in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, Paul says, I knew a man who had the opportunity to go to the third heaven, that is the highest heaven, the abode of God. But I cannot tell of the experiences I had there. Paul says, I went, I can't tell, I'm not writing a book. But we evangelicals get a boy who says he went to heaven and we buy his book. And a number of other books of the same genre. Hear me, dear friends. I don't need and you don't need anybody to tell you heaven is for real. I already know heaven's for real. Here's how I know that. I've got a book that is God's Word. And it tells me that heaven is for real. That's where I get my information. That's where we, if we're going to be discerning Christians, get our information. But let me go on for a bit. As I look at the gullibility of Christians in general. Several years ago, there was an issue of Moody Monthly, now defunct Moody Monthly magazine. And the cover story of this particular issue was devoted to how Christians allow themselves to be so often deceived by rumors, and then they get involved in those rumors, and they take them as fact, and then they spread them around to their Christian friends. And back in those days, there wasn't Facebook for you to spread them around, an email for you to spread them around, and now we can spread around rumors at amazing speed, at warp speed. 
And in that article, it talked about a number of things that have been floating around for years in Christian circles. I remember seeing these very things. Some of you may have as well. <laughs> Did anybody ever see the petition that was circulating to, be, to go to the Federal Communication Commission because atheist Madeleine Murray O'Hare was being given a hearing to take Christian broadcasting off of the, off of the airwaves? That circulated, that circulated for years. Now, if you read the thing carefully, it says in there, Atheist Madeline Mary O'Hare, who, and I'm quoting now, who 16 years ago successfully had Bible reading removed from public schools. Now, that happened in 1963. That was when the Supreme Court decision happened that Madeline Mary O'Hare led to the Supreme Court, and she won that case. 1963. So 16 years later is 1979. This thing was going on well into the 2000s. In the 2000s, I had a well-meaning brother come to me with this petition that I needed to sign. The IRS issued a bulletin. Or excuse me, the FCC issued a bulletin saying, please don't send us any more petitions. One, Madeline Mary O'Hare is dead. And she never had a hearing to begin with. One of the other issues, maybe you heard this one, Procter & Gamble. See, some of you are nodding your heads. Oh, yeah, Procter & Gamble. Giving some of their profits to a satanic cult. And they have satanic symbols in some of their, some of their products. So many things that Christians believe in and buy into. And when I say buy into, I mean literally buy into, spend money on. Years ago, a guy named Mark, uh, Mike Warnke, Mike Warnke told a story, an incre- uh, amazing story, how he had been abducted and abused by a satanic cult, and he was able to escape. And he was able to tell his story of these satanic cults that are all over the country, and they're abducting children. You want to know where those children on the milk carton are? They're in satanic cults. That's what Mike Warnke says. Warnke turned out to be an absolute fraud. But it was many years and many millions of dollars later You know, friends, we are to be people of truth, and we traffic in truth, and we only spread what we know to be truth. And so I encourage you, before you go and spread some rumor and forward it to all your email list, that you just do something simple like go to Snopes.com, TruthOrFiction.com, and all of these rumors are out there with explanations of how they started. More recently... And this will be my last example. It could go on and on. Mark Driscoll, who started Mars Hill Church in Seattle, who started the Acts 29 network, had to leave his church just within the last few months. And yet for years, Mark Driscoll had been exhibiting an anger and a disqualifying character according to 1 Timothy chapter 3 known to those who had worked with him and who had publicized that, but then even those who hadn't worked with him, just people who would listen to him. You could see that there were disqualifying characteristics about Mark Driscoll, but he went on and made all kinds of lives miserable as a result of the closing now of a number of the churches that had been started, and now those sheep are scattered. Jesus says, watch out. 
And he calls Christians to be discerning. And if we're going to be discerning, it means that we distinguish between mere style and we look at real substance. I say in your outline, we not only distinguish between substance and style, but also they distinguish truth from deceit. Truth from deceit. Jesus says the road... The road that I am placing you on, the road that I am calling you to to travel, is a narrow road. And as you evaluate then those who would lead and those who would teach, one of the criteria you should use is to ask yourself whether or not in this individual's teaching they are consistently calling me, calling us to the narrow road. Which means they're willing to tell you the unpleasant parts, not just the things that tickle our fancy. You see, in contrast to the wolves that will come, says Jesus, that warned Paul, in contrast to those wolves that will come, as Paul mentioned in Acts chapter 20, and I gave you that passage earlier, in contrast to that, Paul offers a defense of his own ministry. And that defense of his own ministry is focused on the fact that he, unlike they, tells the whole truth. The whole story. That's why he says famously this. As he's leaving the Ephesian elders and he's warning them about these wolves that will come in from your own number, he says, but I am innocent of the blood of any of you. For, here's why. I have four highlighted there. Because, here's why I'm innocent of the blood. I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole counsel, the whole will of God. The difference between me and them is I'll tell you the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth, says Paul. The reason that I am not guilty of the blood of anyone who has been under my ministry, says Paul, is because they have heard from me the whole truth. I have not hesitated. And that implies that there is a pressure upon those who would be God's spokespersons to pull their punches, to hesitate. And Paul says, I haven't. Whatever it costs me, I have not hesitated. And then in the next verse, he says then, men, to these Ephesian leaders, there are going to be these false teachers that are going to come in and they are going to seek to ravage the flock. From your own number they will come. In contrast to them, I am innocent of the blood of all that I have ministered to because I have not hesitated to tell the whole truth. And now I say to you, keep watch over yourselves. And all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in. I'm telling you, says Paul, to be like me. Care about the flock. And in caring about the flock, tell the flock the whole truth. Don't hold anything back. Warn them about the difficulties of the narrow road. Tell them that the gate indeed is narrow and confining. But if you will go through that gate as we saw last week and walk that road, then you will find a freedom that cannot be found anyplace else. That's why Paul, in the last chapter, in the last letter that we have of Paul in the entire New Testament, he is ready to die at the executioner's hand. He is now giving, in effect, his last will and testament in 2 Timothy last book that he wrote before he died. 
And in the last words that he penned before he gave those famous words, the time of my departure is at hand. I have kept the faith. I have run the race. Just before he says that, this is what he says to Timothy. Preach the word. And preach the word, being prepared in season and out of season. Timothy, preach the truth. Preach the word, the whole truth. Preach it when it's convenient for you and when it's not convenient for you. Preach it when it is welcomed by your audience and when it is unwelcomed by your audience. You be prepared in season and out of season to preach the word. Now why? Next verse. For, because... The time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. So, Timothy, here's the deal. It, that's the way the crowd is. And if you're going to follow the crowd, then you are going to say what they want to hear. But if you're to be a representative of God and His truth, you must preach the Word, the whole Word, and nothing but the Word. And then whatever the crowd does is on them. And you will be able to say, as I am able to say, I am innocent of the blood of all men. Because I have not hesitated to give you the whole will of God. Kent Hughes pastor for many years of college church at Wheaton Christian College says that there are four doctrinal omissions that the false teacher avoids. Four doctrinal omissions. He says the false teacher avoids preaching such things as holiness and righteousness and justice and the wrath of God. Now, can you see why the false teacher would do that? <laughs> Those are not the pleasant things, are they? Those are the narrow road things. You say, do, I mean, are there preachers of the Word who, like, really avoid that stuff? Oh, yeah. Oh, man. Oh, baby. Some of you might be familiar with something called the Willow Creek Association. The Willow Creek Association is named after a church just outside of Chicago to which 15,000 people flock every weekend and have been for a few decades. Willow Creek Community Church. Willow Creek Community Church started by the testimony of the man who started it, Bill Hybels. Willow Creek Community Church started by taking a marketing survey. They gave a marketing survey to the surrounding area and they asked people why they don't go to church and they asked them what would it take for you to come to church. And there was a whole list of things that they compiled. And there were some common things. Like shorter sermons. Don't say anything. Like cooler music. Like and on it went. <clears throat> and they literally compiled this list of results of what the audience wants and designed a church to give that to them. Well, what are the effects of a church like that? Started in the late 1970s. And then in the mid-2000s now, from the 1970s, late 1970s to the mid-2000s, there were churches spawned all across the country, some of them in our area, 
that are part of something called the Willow Creek Association, modeled after the very marketing kind of approach that Willow Creek pioneered. And Willow Creek itself decided to do a survey of the people who attend on, on the weekends, these 15,000 people, in, I believe it was 2005, 2006. When they did this survey, they were horrified that the vast majority of people who attend on Sundays don't know basic Christian truths. In addition to that, I have a book on my shelf called Willow Creek Seeker Services. It's written by a man who spent a year at Willow Creek simply evaluating what they do with their permission, access to their staff, access to their files. He was writing his doctoral, PhD, doctoral dissertation for Northwestern University on the phenomenon of Willow Creek. So he did a year of research, and in this book he gives the results of his research, such as statistics on how many times love was preached on in the year he was there versus how many times holiness was preached on. (laughs) Which do you think won out? Holiness was almost not only never taught, it was almost never mentioned. So can it be any surprise then that after decades of this kind of playing to the audience, to the market, you have a church of people who don't know, don't believe, and don't practice basic Christianity. The false teacher avoids things like holiness, righteousness, justice, the wrath of God, the Sermon on the Mount. Secondly, he avoids, says Kent Hughes, preaching on the doctrine of final judgment, hell. Why would a false teacher avoid hell? (laughs) If there's anything that is unpopular and is very hard and hard to get our minds around, in fact, impossible for me to get my mind around, it is the truth that those outside of Jesus will spend an eternity outside of God, but not only outside of God, but in punishment for their rejection of God eternally. What a difficult thing. And yet, the Word of God teaches it very clearly. Thirdly, the false teacher fails to emphasize the fallenness and the depravity of mankind to tell us we're sinners. And the reasons that we do the things that we do are because we are by nature sinners. Instead, it's more palatable to focus on us being wounded and broken rather than being fallen and sinful. And if you read carefully and you listen carefully to current evangelical literature, wounded and broken rather than sinful and fallen. Over the years, I've had people say to me, you know, I don't go to church because when I go to church, I come out feeling bad. When I go to church, I want to feel good about myself. You're at the wrong church. I feel very good about Jesus. I feel very good about the fact that in God's grace and in His mercy, He has reached down to save, to rescue, to deliver me. I feel very good about that. But friends, I don't stand before God and I don't stand before you in my own goodness. And in my own flesh, in my own nature, I have nothing to feel good about. Here's what I have to feel good about. The grace and mercy of of God on me, a sinner. And fourthly, 
Hughes says, false teachers de-emphasize the substitutionary death and atonement of Christ. They de-emphasize the person and work of Christ. Now, they mention it. Remember, these are wolves in sheep's clothing. They mention it. They have the lingo. But they de-emphasize it. Instead, what they teach you are topical things like keys to a better life and present you with gimmicks and fads rather than the sufficiency of Scripture and the gospel that's contained in that Scripture. I will give you a test for you to use, and then we will move on, and we will be done shortly. But ask yourself, if what you hear someone teach or preach requires the Spirit of God, requires conversion and regeneration in order for this person to do it, or whether or not in following their 12 keys to a better life, even a moral pagan could do it. So many of our churches in our topical sermons and self-improvement emphases, if somebody's simply a moral pagan, if you follow the directions, you can do it. But Jesus' teaching requires you must be born again. That's why Paul had to say to his detractors, and he had many of them, he said in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. We are not trying to please people, but God. You know we never used flattery. We were not looking for praise from people, not from you or anyone else. He said in 2 Corinthians 4, We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, we set forth the truth plainly. Now, I have worded this in your outline in terms of what it is that Christians are to do in order to be discerning. Jesus says, watch out for the false prophets. And so I've given some characteristics of of false prophets. But what I'm really interested in is us heeding that warning and us as God's people understanding what it is that we are to do in order to distinguish, discern truth from error, good from bad, right from wrong. And you see, friends, this is why there's a responsibility on the receivers to be desirous of God's word. There's a responsibility on all of us to be people who want to be told the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. It's not always the case with God's people. Isaiah chapter 30 says this. These are rebellious people, deceitful children. Children unwilling to listen to the Lord's instruction. They say, tell us pleasant things. Stop confronting us with the Holy One of Israel. I just want to say to you, by way of encouragement, yes, I am capable of encouragement. I am so thankful for a congregation of people who loves God's Word, who want to be told God's Word, who want to be told it completely, even when it's difficult to hear. I'm thankful for the notes of encouragement that I receive virtually every week from folks saying, thank you for being faithful to the Word of God. And I am thanking you for wanting faithfulness to the Word of God. It is tempting for anyone, myself included, to play to the crowd. Oh, God, deliver us from being people-centered rather than being God-centered. Christians are called to discern quickly. Christians are called, I say in your outline, to observe. 
Christians are called to discern, but they're called to observe. Verse 16, by their fruit, you will recognize them. This fruit includes their teaching, but it includes also the fruit of their own lives and the fruit of the lives of those that they have taught. And evaluating that fruit will take time. And that's why I say in your outline, as we observe, we evaluate patiently. We evaluate patiently. Because Jesus says, do people pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? And of course, the answer is, is no. Now, why does he say that? Why does he say grapes from thorn bushes or figs from, from thistles? Well, the reason he, he says that is because there was in that day a thorn bush that had little black berries that could be mistaken for grapes. And there was a thistle whose flower from a distance might be mistaken for a fig. But over time, no one would confuse the thorn bush and the grape once they started to use that fruit to make juice. Or no one would be taken in by the thistle flowers when it came to eating figs for supper. And so over time, even though they will look the same for a period of time, their fruit will come to be known. That's what Jesus is saying. And part of that fruit, it's not just their teaching, it's the fruit of their own lives. I've talked about that a bit. But over time, it will also be the fruit of the lives of those that they have taught. Over time, if someone is being faithful to the Word of God, and you have people who are coming to be taught the Word of God and want to be taught it in whole, not just in part, then that should have good effect in the lives of those people, good fruit in the lives of those people. That's why Hebrews 13, the Bible says, Your leaders keep watch over you as those who must give an account. Now, all of us will stand or fall before God on our own, but I will give an account for what I have taught you, and over time what I have taught you should result in good fruit in the lives of those who come regularly to feast upon God's Word. So we evaluate patiently, and lastly, we evaluate spiritually. We evaluate spiritually. Verse 17, every good tree bears good fruit, but a bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot bear bad fruit, and a bad tree cannot bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire by their fruit. You will recognize them. Now, what is this, this fruit? This fruit is the norms of the kingdom that Jesus has just described in two and a half chapters of the Sermon on the Mount. D.A. Carson says this, the fruit of the Lord Jesus that he looks for is a life in growing conformity to the norms of the kingdom. Things like righteousness, transparent humility, purity, trusting and persistent prayerfulness, obedience to Jesus' words, truthfulness, love, generosity, rejection of all that is hypocritical. And that is the kind of fruit spiritual fruit that will be seen in the lives of not only those who teach, but those who are taught, if we teach the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. In the title of this message, you see up at the top, it says, what you see and what you get. But you guys know the phrase, right? What you see is what you get. But I worded it that way on purpose. There's what you see and there's what you get from false teachers. There's what looks impressive on the outside, but then over time, there's what you get. But God says for us who would lead God's flock, what you see 
is to be what you get. Your take-home truth then is this. Christians are called to discern truth and righteousness in the lives of their leaders. Let's bow together before the Lord. Father, we thank you again for the blessed privilege of being in your presence and with your people and in this place. We thank you for the opportunity to open your word and to be taught your character and your designs for your people. Lord, help us to ever be people of the book. Help us to be people who love the book, love the truth of the book and evaluate all persons and all things and all organizations and all events, that we test everything, that we evaluate everything, and we do so by the standard of the inerrant, infallible, inspired word of the living God. May it ever be true that Community Bible Church is focused on the Bible. May it ever be true that a church that says we are the family of God built on the word of God to the glory of God stands indeed on the Word of God, and that we build lives upon the basis of the truth of the Word of God. O Lord, keep us from wavering. Keep us from compromise. Keep me from failing in the task that you have assigned to me. Only by your mercy can it be carried out. And keep us as a church desiring to hear, to learn, and to be changed by your truth. We pray all of this for the glory of Jesus. Amen.